0: We will not be in Colossians. We will instead be uh, in Ephesians this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles over there, it will also be up on the screen. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll read verses 3 through 14. Hear God's words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us all in all wisdom and insight, making it known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance When the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Um, the way in which we often refer to ourselves in this world sociologically and culturally, and the question that is often asked is, when did you become a Christian? It's become a part of our terminology and the fabric. In fact, when you see it on sociological sort of uh, They want to know, are you a Christian? But oddly enough, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, not a single time, refers to us as Christians. Not once. In fact, the only time in which we see Paul having any connection or relationship to this word Christian is when King Agrippa, when Paul is on trial before him, uh, claims or calls Paul a Christian. The term Christian was a term of mockery. Of criticism or censure to the early church. But there is a term that Paul does use over and over and over again in Christ. The expression in Christ, the Greek being in Christu or in Christu Jesu, in Christ Jesus, or in Him, the Him, the antecedent of the Him being Christ Jesus, or in Kyrios being in the Lord occurs 216 times in Paul's letters. It occurs another 26 times in John's letters to the church. Now, in seeking to understand this phrase, this little prepositional phrase filled with power, theologians have summed all the scriptures teaching around this little phrase as being what is called the doctrine of union with Christ Jesus. And that is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to take a break from Colossians We somewhat addressed this and dipped our toe into this last week in the midst of our series in Colossians. But frankly, I got to a point in reading that is I felt like I needed to address this doctrine head on in large part because it comes up so many times in Colossians. Sometimes you simply have to address a topic right at the heart of it and get a comprehensive understanding of what we're talking about. And so we're, this is a topical sermon. I'm not looking to exegete Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I am simply wanting to deal with this idea, this doctrine that is known as the union with Christ. It is easy to miss this emphasis, this central emphasis of Paul called the union with Christ. But if you recognize, as I was reading through Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and gave emphasis to all the in hymns and the in Christ and in Jesus, once you see it, it is everywhere, everywhere in the New Testament. It is Paul's fundamental way of speaking about what it means to be a Christian. If we were to gather all, the, all the, the writings of Paul, all the various letters that he has, and put them all in one little block, one little book, that book would be about 100 pages long. And I said just a few minutes ago that this phrase, in Christ or in Him, is used 216 times in the midst of that 100 pages. Now, if you ran across something in a 100-page book 216 times, you would think that that was the central emphasis of that book, or at least one of the primary things that that book is trying to communicate. And theologians throughout church history have fallen all over themselves. I mean, foaming at the mouth... Trying to describe how great and how significant this doctrine is. Let's just hear from two of them. John Calvin said this: that union with Christ has the highest, ooh, has, the highest <laughs> has the highest degree of importance. <laughs> if we're to understand the Christian life correctly. This is the highest of importance, degree of importance. John Murray, another famous Reformed theologian of the 20th century, said this, Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phrase of the application of redemption. Instead, it underlines every single aspect of every blessing that we receive from redemption. All right, I've gone on and on. You get it. Union with Christ is the heart of the message of Christianity, so let's dive into it. I'm going to give you four points this morning, all from different perspectives, trying to go from a different angle to understand union with Christ. First, we'll look at the definition of union with Christ. Then we'll look at some pictures. Third, we'll look at some benefits. And then finally, end with just a few implications for us. First, let's just dive right into it, very propositionally, very directly, the definition of union with Christ, and it is this. Union with Christ means this. Union with Christ means that we are spiritually united to Christ. Such that he is spiritually inside of us. And we are spiritually in him. The New Testament uses two interchangeable expressions to describe this union with Christ. Us in Christ and Christ in us. Now I'm going to give you just a smattering here of the 216 verses. I'm going to give you five or six of them really quickly running through this to show you how this is definitely evident in the scriptures. Ephesians 1.4, as we saw this morning. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Whatever you think or believe about predestination or election, it says that your election is in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans 8, 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because of righteousness. 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And finally, Philippians three nine in being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In Christ or Him in us, this is a central theme of the New Testament. That's what it means to be united to Christ. He's in us and we are in him. And interestingly enough, this is not just an emphasis of the New Testament. This is a theme that runs through the entire story of Scripture. In fact, in Romans 5, when Paul is talking about from a Um, macro level, from a 30,000 foot level of what happens in our redemption is that we have been taken from being in someone else to being put in Christ Jesus. He describes our fallenness is that since Adam, we have all been in Adam, meaning that he is our federal head, that when Adam fell, when he sinned against God, you fell. And all humanity fell with Adam. And because of that, all of our desires have been broken. All of our deeds have been sinful. All the world is trashed because of what Adam did. But in our redemption, what Christ is doing is he's transferring us from being in Adam to being in Christ Jesus. No longer, if you're in Christ, is Adam your federal head. He does not represent you. You have a new president. You have a new king. You have a new person on the throne. That's what the gospel is about—the transfer from one kingdom to another. Now, you might ask, if this doctrine is so central and so important, why have I never actually heard of it, or perhaps hardly ever talked about? How could this be? Well, three quick answers as we transition to the images or pictures. But it's this: first, is this doctrine hardly ever talked about because union with Christ, even the Bible, is described as a mystery? In Ephesians 5, we're going to look at this image in just a minute, it describes our union with Christ as the being like a bride and bridegroom, being united where two become one. And Paul says this, now this truth is a mystery. It is difficult for us to comprehend. And that mystery is further compounded for us who are good Western Americans because this whole idea of federal headship of having been in Adam now, or in Christ, and being represented by Adam, and now instead, when you're a Christian, you're now represented by Christ Jesus. Is so foreign to us. We believe in our kind of libertarian autonomy. It is what you do as an individual. It's not necessarily about your family. It's about what you do. But that is not the paradigm for most of human history, or for most countries and cultures. And it's certainly not the paradigm of the Scriptures is that we are represented by Adam first and foremost in our lostness. But when you've been transferred and you become a Christian, you are now represented by Christ. So it's a mystery, and then it's a mystery compounded by cultural differences. Second, though, this doctrine's hardly talked about, because the pervasiveness of this doctrine makes it easily forgotten. You don't think about the air that you breathe very often, do you? You just breathe it. Well, the doctrine of the union with Christ is the spiritual and theological air that you breathe as you read the New Testament. That's what it is. You, you cease to think about it. It's there, and its pervasiveness almost makes you think about it less. A third reason why this doctrine is often overlooked and not talked about is simply the reality that is communicated in this doctrine far surpasses the ability of human language to express. If Ephesians 5 calls it a mystery, if the word of God struggles to communicate to us the power of it, we're going to struggle to communicate the beauty of it. Get this in just trying to get a sense of how magnificent this doctrine is. John fourteen twenty three, Jesus in answering a man says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come and make our home with him. Now, as Christians, we have gotten so used to this language, this idea that Christ is in me and we are in Christ, that we don't see the wonder of that. God is going to live inside of you. That is earth-shattering. That is mind-blowing. And you are going to live in God's. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which by itself, in a way, is a mystery and blows our minds to begin with, it's, the Trinity is going to come and make residence inside of you. That is impossible to capture in words. And so these, this doctrine, because it is, it is so it feels elusive to us, because we have so little understanding of it, because it is veiled in mystery, because it is beyond our comprehension, our ability to communicate fully. Sometimes we simply stay away from it because we don't know how to deal with it with our minds. We can't capture it fully. In fact, the scriptures, knowing how awesome this is, don't even try to define it in the way I've tried to define it this morning. It doesn't try to give a propositional statement defining what it means to be united to Christ. Instead, what it gives us is pictures, images, metaphors. The scriptures indeed, in fact, the four major pictures given to us in the New Testament all have to do with union with Christ. Let me give you these four pictures. John 15 is a very familiar one. The vine and the branches. John 15 verses 4 and 5 says this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The image of the vine and the branches is a depiction of union with Christ. It is a branch that has been engrafted into the vine. And what it means, its implications for us from that picture is union with Christ means because you are connected to him and you live in him and he in you means that he is your very life, your very sustenance, the nourishment upon which you live. This gives us an understanding of the Christian life as well. Because a branch is not engrafted into the tree or to the vine one time, and then it skitters off. It stays united to the vine. If it ever is cut off from the branch and from the vine, then it will die. It may look alive for a period of time, but eventually it will die. So this, tells us, this, this picture of union with Christ says that he is the beginning of your life, and he is the means to be nourished and sustained throughout the rest of your life. Speaking to how vital this connection is with Christ Jesus, the second image we give in the New—you are given in the New Testament—is the body and limbs image. We looked at this a couple weeks ago briefly as an illustration from something we saw in Colossians one two, and First Corinthians twelve. I'm not going to read it because really the whole chapter is laying out and drawing out this image of body and limbs. But the, the main teaching there is that Christ is the head, and we are the limbs connected to Him. We are the hands and feet of Christ Jesus. And what I said a couple of weeks ago in regards to this image is true today, which is where the head goes, because you're, the rest of your body is connected to the head, the body goes. I use the illustration of my son who's starting to learn how to walk. If he puts his head forward, the rest of his body is going to go with him. This is how it is with us. That where Christ goes, we go. What Christ gets, we get. The third image Is that of a foundation and a building. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. So then it says, You are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together with a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The image of union with Christ that has been given here, the implications of this, is that if you are united to Christ, he is the foundation of your life. If you are blown and thrown, tossed to and fro and out throughout your life, the reason is because you are not rightly connected to Christ Jesus. You are not finding that you are established in him. Jesus uses the same similar illustration in a parable where he talks about those who build their houses upon the sand. They have a really nice view. But when the storms come, what happens? They are washed away. And again, the depiction of our union with Christ is that your Christian life is to be rooted and founded upon. It begins and it is built up on Christ Jesus. You never leave him. The capstone, you're never separated from the capstone and the foundation. And in fact, that image of a capstone, where they would put that capstone in place, it was also the means of directing the entirety of the rest of the building. Jesus is not only your life, he is your foundation. He is the means by which your whole life is directed. He is the means of perseverance as a Christian. Fourth and final image, and that is the most personal and intimate of all the images, and that's the image of a bride and a groom that we see in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 29 through 32 says this, For no one hated his own flesh, but instead nourishes and cherishes it. Interesting. There's the image of vine and branches And body and limbs, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. There's the second image. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There is a mystical union between God, between Jesus Christ and his people. And the image that he uses is the image of two people who become one flesh. This is an image this is an image that God has used throughout the New Old Testament in describing his relationship with his people Israel that he has a covenantal relationship with them. He has promised to be their God, they have promised to be his people and they live within this legal relationship but loving relationship together. It's described as a marriage bond. Genesis 2: 2, two will become one and understand this that the physical physical union, the intimate physical union between a man and a woman graphically depicts our union with Christ Jesus. I am not being irreverent here. I'm trying to raise the physical union between a husband and a wife to a man and a woman up to its sacred status. Which it depicts the nature of your relationship with Jesus. We are the ones who solely this. He's raising it back up. And the intimacy of that relationship where two people who are still unique individuals become literally bonded together. And that union is a picture of how close-knit we are with Christ Jesus. We are not God, and he is not us. But we are intimately tied together. Just as in the marriage illustration, what he gets, we get. And what, we, what have we brought into the marriage? He got what we brought into the marriage. He brought blessings. We brought cursings. Think about this. My wife and I have a, have a good friend she had from college and from high school days who in the course of just her undergrad racked up over $100,000 in student loan debt and never graduated. And that didn't even count her credit card debt. Now, a couple years later, she started the date guy, and they started to get serious, and they got engaged. Guess what was a really difficult conversation? Honey, <laughs> here's what I'm bringing into the marriage. 100000 in debt. That's what we brought into our marriage with, with Jesus. But he took it and he paid for it. He paid down the debt and he has given us all his blessings. The final image, the final image, and this points us and takes us right back to the mystery though, is the other image that Jesus gives us is an image of his relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. In John 17, 21 through 23, it says this, that all, he's praying for his disciples. This is the night before he goes to die. He's praying this in the high priestly prayer. He's asking for his disciples that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are in one, I in them, and you in me. What he's saying here is that we are brought into the very love of the Trinity. May we be united in that way. No wonder it's a mystery. It blows our minds. But here's the point and why the scriptures don't give us a propositional defi- definition. Because it all, in our... In our humanists, we cannot fully comprehend this, but it gives us images and metaphors to make our hearts sing. Would you daydream about these things? This is actually what I have you and call you to do in your discussion guide this week in your community groups. That when you gather together, when you when you sit and you think about this, that as you mull over this, I can't go into all the implications of these images that you would sit there and you would simply brainstorm and you would daydream about all the implications of these images, what it means for your life, and would you do that together? Would your heart begin to escalate as you set your mind upon things above and how great these images are and what they mean for your life? All right, so we've taken the direct approach with the definition. We've taken the roundabout approach with the pictures and the images and the metaphors Finally, let's, let's look at it from this angle, which is the benefits. The benefits of our union with Christ. Let me describe it this way. And this is the way Paul and the other New Testament writers describe it. Is first, our, we have a legal or covenantal benefits because we are connected to Christ. That there is something that is declared over us. We are objectively declared to have something. It says things like this, that when Christ died, you died. That Christ, that his righteousness is now your righteousness because he lives inside of you and you live in him. And you are declared righteous before God. He sees you right now, even while you're not living a righteous life, he sees you as righteous in Christ Jesus. He sees your old man as dead completely. He sees you as living a new life in Christ. It's our legal status. It's what is objectively ours. We are legally called sons and daughters. But what we see in the New Testament is whenever Paul talks about this, he talks about our legal status. He says this legal status begins to have an existential effect. It has an experiential effect upon our lives. But Jesus didn't come to say, hey, there's a piece of paper in heaven that says you're God's son. But you actually begin to experience the sonship. There's not just a piece of paper saying, that old man, you, is dead. But you actually begin to experience new life. See, when Jesus compares us to a vine and to branches, he was not thinking of a mere technical position that we attained by being connected to Christ Jesus. He was thinking about these doctrines and these truths actually beginning to have a real difference, a real shaping effect on your life. So that, let's take the vine and the branches image. That when you're connected to Christ Jesus, you, if you think of a tree... You don't look at a branch and go, that's a branch. You just think of it as part of the tree. You're now part of this beautiful tree of the Godhead. You've been united to it, you're united to Christ. But that unification has an effect in your life. A tree, a branch that is connected to the tree that has nourishment, does what? It produces fruit. It begins to be played out in their life, the truth that they experience in Christ Jesus. So let me walk through three significant benefits that we experience in this life that are legally ours and are experientially ours because of our union with Christ. The first benefit, the first two, I'm going to look at quickly because I dealt with them somewhat last week. The first benefit is this: is your old man is dead. Your old man is dead. Galatians 2:20 says this: "I have been crucified with Christ." Were you there? You didn't, I mean, you, didn't actually, you weren't actually there. This is spiritually speaking. Your old man has been spiritually crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Your old man was put to death. Now what is the old man? The old man is the natural proclivity that you were born in. That you were born in Adam, which means from the second that you were conceived, all the desires of your heart were wicked. That your old man, that the longings that you have, your taste buds were for anything and everything but God. That's what your old man was. And so you lived out of those desires. You You always do what you most desire. And you live out of those desires so that you can do nothing but evil and wickedness. But what he has said is spiritually and legally, your old man has been put to death. And now who lives inside of you? Who is the new man? Christ, it says in Galatians 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so here's the reality, is that some of you are struggling with a life of sin in which you still have the mindset of the old man, in which you are thinking, I have this addiction in my life, I have this pattern in my life, and I cannot defeat it. But that's simply not true. Your old man is dead, and now you've been given the desires of Christ Jesus. Jesus. Think of it this way. If some of you are are, are questioning your salvation and are you in Christ, if you desire to obey God, if you desire to love Jesus, that is a really good sign. Because sinful man does not desire those things. It means you have new taste buds. You have the taste buds of Christ beginning to to transform your life. And now because you have died to sin, you are set free from that old man. I, I used this illustration last week, but I'm going to bring it up again. If you can imagine being a person who was, under, who was an enslaved people group, and you lived in a city where there was an awful, wicked king, and he ruled your life, and anybody within that, that group who were part of the, the, the ruling population could come up to any of you who were in the enslaved population and declare and demand that you do whatever they say, and you had to do it. But what's happened in Christ Jesus when he enters our lives is a new king is on the throne. The old king, he's still present and he's roaming the city, but he no longer has power and authority in your life to control you. But he still comes and he tries to tempt you, he tries to boss you around. But now what you get to say is, You are not the boss. Think of like a little brother speaking to his sister You ain't the boss. (laughs) Jesus is the boss. And I don't have to do what you say anymore. I have a new king reigning in my life. So that's the first benefit. The second benefit is that you are raised, you get new life in Christ's resurrection. It says it there in Galatians 2 in the life I now live, I live in the faith, I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When Christ was raised, you were raised spiritually. When Christ entered your life, there was a new life that was born in you. And now what is happening is with Christ. You think about the power of the Holy Spirit, you have a new vitality, a new ability to do what God desires you to do. So it's not only, not only is it that you are able to obey, but now you want to obey. You desire to obey. This is what it is to be resurrected. And you have the ability to obey. That is a good, good thing. Let me get to the third blessing, because that's where I want to focus this morning. As we... Come near the end, and it's this. You have a new identity is the third benefit. An entirely new identity. You are Christ. Being united to Jesus, your identity changes. In fact, it uses that dis- dis- depiction, d- depiction, right? You, you died, and now there's a new life in you. Michael Horton, who's written a number of things on Union with Christ, he uses this illustration where we'll begin to help us understand this new identity. He used the illustration of a Cuban spy named Salvador. And during the Cold War era, this man, he he was sent by Castro and the Cuban government to come infiltrate uh, the United States. So he came over and joined the the Cuban population in Miami and was seeking to to wield and work his way into the United States government and, and gather information in order to send back to spy on us. But in the course of getting connected with all of these Cubans who have now lived in the United States, he became convinced that he didn't want to serve Cuba anymore, and so decided at one point that he was going to turn himself over to the U.S. government, and he did so. He turns himself over to the U.S. government so that they give him a, a new passport, they give him immunity. Now the one problem for Salvador was, if he did that, the Cubans were going to come after him, they were going to kill him for his treason. And so, what they had to do, what the United States government had to do, is they had to play out a way in which they could convince the Cuban government that Salvador was dead. That's exactly what they did. They did it in such a way that the Cuban government was satisfied that Salvador, their spy, was indeed dead. Then they gave Salvador a new identity, they gave him a new name, and they gave him a new life somewhere, probably in Montana. (laughs) He has a new identity. Well, in this, we have a great illustration of what happens to us in Christ. That in Christ you died. Your old identity, your old man was put away with. Which means this with your new identity, you now have three things a new past, a new present, and a new future. It's a new past in that this you have a new record. Jesus' record is now your record. When you read the Gospels and you see all the beautiful and wonderful things that Jesus did, the way he cared for the poor and the miracles he did, those, those good works are on your record before God's. It is no longer the horrific things that, have you, that you have done in your past, nor the horrific things that have been done to you. Second, you get a new presence, a new status of sorts. Let me read Ephesians 2 4 through 7. It says this But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Then he gives this And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's present tense. There is a sense in which you are right now seated with Christ Jesus in heaven. You are before God the Father, which means two things. One, first and foremost, it means that right now you are considered acceptable in God's sights, which means today when you get up, some of you are functioning in this paradigm. You are getting up and you're saying, What do I have to do today to be acceptable to God? But that's not the reality, that's not the objective reality. You get to get up every day and you get to say, how do I get to live into the joy of who God has already made me to be in Christ Jesus? He loves me, he accepts me, and now I get to live like a child before a father who simply plays. That changes your presence. Some of you are going through the Christian life like it's a doldrum, like you have a humongous weight on your back and it's crushing you because you think you have to earn God's acceptance still. But right now, you are even right now, it says, legally seated in heaven before God the Father. Now, third, it gives us a new future. The last verse of Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 7 there, it says this, So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. As God's child, as one who has even now been accepted in his sight, you have what every child gets, which is an inheritance. And it is waiting for you even now. Because you are now legally in Christ Jesus. You are now seated in him before God the Father. It means nothing, nothing, nothing can take that inheritance away. It means you cannot be stripped from your relationship with God. Because you are legally seated right now before him. These are the benefits. This is all that is yours. All this flows out of Our connection, our union with Christ Jesus. Now let me end with some applications, some implications of this. Two things, two areas in which I want to focus. Simply want to walk through that new identity for a minute. The implications of our new identity changes the way you view the Christian life. Changes the the how of the Christian life. Understanding union with Christ gives you a new engine, a new motivation let me, let me think through, let's go through those three aspects of our identity, that Christ has given us a new past, a new present, and a new future. Some of you are unable to talk about your past. I have a very close and dear family member who is unable to talk about her past. In fact, if any of her brothers or sisters bring it up, she shuts them down in an almost hyperbolic way. It wasn't so much what she did, it was what was done to her. Some of you are there. The things that you did, the things that were done to you, they still control your life now. Because you think of it, that is my past, and it defines you still. The way in which you are changed, the way in which you are healed, is to daily go back and take that past, and you say, that is not my past anymore, Christ's past is my past. Laying that at his feet, saying that adultery, that fornication, that abuse that I endured, it's there, it's real, it's part of my story, but it is not part of my ultimate story. And not only do you, when you cling to the past of Christ Jesus and claim it for yourself, not only does it be able to heal, it heals the wounds, but it actually gives a new perspective to the realities of your past. Second, new present, the implications of that. Some of you are haunted, as I just talked about, by your failures today. Some of you, I think about this as a father and a husband and as a man who goes to work every day. It feels like life is just one more opportunity when I wake up in the morning for me to fail. All right, it's it's more of like curiosity. How can I, in what way will I fail today? Let's shake the dice and throw it out on the floor. That's And that's the reality because we're weak and broken human beings. But the way in which we deal with those failures is not to say, well, I just got to do better. I just got to do better. You want to do better. That's lovely. But the way to do better, the way to have the wings and to be able to stand up and fight is to know that you are right now accepted, that you feed upon that when you wake up in the morning and you live out of that on a daily basis so that when you put your head on the pillow you are not crushed by your failures, you're not elevated too highly by your successes, but you're simply pleased with who you are in God's sight. Third, what about your new future? Some of you are scared to death of the future. You watch primaries and it scares you to death. You read the news or watch the news and it scares you to death. You look at your children's behavior and it scares you to death. And what it leads to for many of us is because we have not submitted our futures to the Lord and we don't trust that he owns our future, we control it ourselves. Some of you are scared about how your children are going to turn out and so you're crushing them now. You're going to squeeze righteousness right out of them as your approach. Or you're simply trying to scare the sin right out of them. That's not the gospel approach. Some of you, some of you are so scared about your finances that you function like Scrooges through life, you are misers, or you're workaholics because you have to work so hard in order to ensure your future. That's not the gospel perspective. Your future is promised to you. Jesus has set you free from having to control today in order to ensure that you have a good future yourself. He has ensured your future. You will persevere. He will provide. He will never leave you or forsake you because you are connected to Christ Jesus. And one day, you may be a pauper when you leave this world, but you will enter eternity as a prince who gets all the riches of heaven. Would that not let you release some control right now? This changes your life now when you understand these perspectives. See, we will have a happily ever ending, won't we? Aren't you so annoyed by romantic movies? Like the Cinderella endings, right? So romantic movies are about the, the main man and the main woman getting together at the end, right? And at the end, even if it's not stated, it's implied. And As the, the cameras pull back, as they enter into the final embrace of the last scene of the movie, the thought and the expression, what is either stated or implied is this, and they live happily ever after. And as a realist and a pessimist, don't you just want to go, that's not true. They're going to have a thousand fights. They're going to have children. That's going to ruin everything. They're going to have a painful time. Like you look at Cinderella and the prince running off and you go, this is ridiculous. They're like 22. They have no idea how to live life. What is going on there, but what is going on there in all of those books, in all those novels, in all of those movies, is there is something within the human soul that longs for a union that is eternal and that actually does mean that you will live happily ever after. And that's what you get in your reunion with Christ Jesus. It means tomorrow may be really painful, but there will be a day when we are consummated. It says when Jesus comes back, we enter into the wedding, an eternal wedding. In which we will have life ha- ever after that is happy and joyous. All right, so it changes the way you look at your life now. But also, one more thing is it changes the entirety of the way you look at the Christian life to begin with. If you believe the truths of this doctrine, let me put it frankly: if you believe the truths of these doctrine, of this doctrine, it will threaten you. It will threaten you. Let me give you a story from Soren Kirky Guard. And what union with Christ looks like. He tells the story of a day laborer who lives in a great kingdom with a great and majestic king. He is wonderful. And this day laborer, what he would think is the high point of his life would be to just be able to meet this great king one day. If this king would invite him into his presence and he'd be able to shake his hand and have a brief conversation with him, then his life, man, that would be great. And he could go back to his friends. And he could could remember that day and tell great stories. And it would be awesome. But Kirkegaard goes on and he says this, but what if what if the king, instead of simply inviting the man, the day laborer, for a conversation and a handshake, instead he writes to the day laborer and says, I want you to be my son. The day laborer would be befuddled by this. He would question it. In fact, in his humanist, he would go, is the king just simply trying to make fun of me? I'm merely a day laborer. I, have no, I don't deserve to be his son. What the day laborer, what really what he wants in his heart of hearts is just to have one encounter, one letter from the king that he can put up on the mantle as a relic. He can keep all his old friends, he can keep his job, and he can keep his old life, and he can simply just add this one little relic to his life. It, can, it would elevate all the wonderful little things that he enjoys now. But that's not what the king asks. The king asks for him to be his son. And Kierkegaard says this, that what this is what it is to live by faith. This is what it is to dive into Christianity. Is when the emperor sends you a letter and says, I want you to be my son. You don't say, no, no, no. I, I just want to keep the letter. And that's all that. That's that. That's will satisfy me. But when the, when the letter says, when the letter says, I want you to be my son, you have to give up your whole life. Because now you have an entirely new identity. See, for many of you, your Christian life and the way you think about Christianity is you had a really nice life and you wanted Jesus to be added to it, to just clean up a few areas. Jesus, if you could just elevate my life, elevate my parenting just a little bit and elevate my marriage just a little bit and elevate my successes at work and make me just a little bit happier, that's the Christian life. Jesus gets tacked on, but that's not what he came to do. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says, we think the Christian life is we invite Jesus into our house to, to repair a few things. He repairs the leaky gutters and the fan that doesn't work. But then he starts knocking down walls and expanding things. And you said, Jesus, I just wanted a sweet little cottage. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm coming to live inside of your house, and I'm a king so I'm going to make a palace out of you. Would you get rid of your small goals for your life? Do you see that union with Christ means that your old, all your old identities go away and you have an entirely new identity? See, what Christ did in the, in, the, in the Gospels, he didn't come to make bad people or mostly good people just a little bit better. He came to kill you and then to give you a new life. You know Christ tells us that we can't simply add Jesus to our lives. He comes to radically and utterly transform us, to change us, and to flip our lives upside down. Would you let him? Do you understand Christianity that way? And would you invite him into the the rooms that you know are a real mess? When he starts knocking down the walls of your life, would you go, I submit to you? This is what Christianity is about. If you do that, it's interesting, if you do that, if you, if, you, if you release your life, all your old identities, you actually will find your life. This is what Jesus said. Whoever tries to hold on to his life will lose it. But he who finds me will find a life eternal. He comes to transform you. And to not change just a few things, but to change everything. Let's pray. Oh God, so much like last week, this was encyclopedic. And this was very long, and this was very dense. Lord, the enormity of this, Lord, is hard for us to kind of grapple with. But gracious God, I pray that by your Spirit, as we go away, and as we mull on these things, and mull on these benefits, and we chew on them, God, I pray that we would not run away from these truths too quickly. But Lord, this afternoon, and in our community groups, and throughout this week, we would we would meditate on what the benefits, all the benefits that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that we, if we recognize today that we, we simply were satisfied with just tacking you on to our life, and that's been our Christianity, Lord, I pray that we repent of it, and we'd say, Lord, would you, I surrender my life to you and completely. Would Christ come and take everything and transform me from the inside out, transform every part of my life, No matter how painful and life-altering that might be, would you do that? Would we have the boldness and the willingness to pray such a prayer? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.